Welcome to Chilling with Teddy G, an authentic black channel empowering the black community and capturing the modern day black reality through investigative journalism. I'm your host, Teddy G. Hello, my melanated kings and queens. Welcome to another episode of CWTG. As you know, I'm Teddy G, your host. And on this channel, ladies and gentlemen, you know we discuss anything and everything with absolutely no sugar, no frosting, and definitely no mayonnaise. So, ladies and gentlemen, y'all go grab yourself your favorite cup of coffee, tea, or latte, whichever it is that you prefer to drink. And uh, give me a few minutes of your time as we're going to discuss uh, Khalid uh, uh, Gambrent uh, Mohammed, who is a uh, historian, professor, and a published author of uh, The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of a Modern Urban America. Was He was interviewed, ladies and gentlemen, on uh, Democracy Now!, which is one of the... Uh, uh, media outlets that I use from time to time to uh, discuss uh, issues that are important to us because they're one of the more uh, um, stations, media outlets that are truth-telling and they don't use a lot of flavoring. They don't have too much uh, 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 sugars and they don't have uh, too much mayonnaise. So uh, I do use them, but they're still in the category with uh, uh, a lot of lamestream media, but I give them more credit than I do uh, the rest. So with all that being said, ladies and gentlemen, they interviewed um, um, Khalil or uh, Dr. Muhammad and uh, uh, his, uh, his views on the uh, Georgia Floyd uh, verdict, the guilty verdict, uh, was quite profound, and he he spins a uh, a light on the situation that I think a lot of Americas, especially um, Black Americas, may not be seeing. So this is the reason why I wanted to share this interview with you and uh, his uh, uh, point of view of uh, was was act was uh, George uh, um, Floyd's murder. Um, that put David Chavez on trial should it have put American policing on trial because this is the big issue and this is the big problem in the divided snakes of America. And uh, he's give his points of view on that and I want y'all to uh, check that out. And uh, uh, we're going to get right into that as soon as we get this dirty laundry done because you know at the studios of Chilling with Teddy G. It's a must that we keep it clean with the uh, Copyright Disclaimer Act of uh, 1976 under Title 17, Section 107. Allowances is made for the fair use for the purpose of the criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarships, and research. Fair use is permitted by the copyright statute that may otherwise be infringing. Nonprofit education or personal use tips the balance in the favor of fair use. So, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get right to this uh, uh, interview. And please feel free, ladies and gentlemen, after the uh, you hear this uh, uh, commentary, 
leave a comment. By all means, we'll, we'll play it on the air and uh, we'll discuss it as we sometimes do here uh, on Chilling with Teddy G. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, listen, let's get right into it. Gonzalez, guilty, guilty, guilty. Three weeks after the start of the trial that was watched around the world and after 10 hours of deliberation, a jury of 12 Henneman County residents delivered their guilty verdicts Tuesday on all three counts against former police officer Derek Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd last May by kneeling on his back for nine and a half minutes. As we continue to discuss the verdict and its implications, we're joined by Khalil Gibran Mohammed, professor of history, race, and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, author of The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America. Uh, professor Mohammed, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Take us on a journey back. Um, respond to the verdict, but then talk about the beginning of policing in America and its connection to slave patrols. Good morning, Amy, and good morning, Juan. I think that this verdict, um, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about how to respect the family's sense of closure and what they deserve in the delivery of accountability in this case. But I've also been thinking about this in turn battle in a broader context of a war, and that war being justice for black people and for BIPOC people and for poor people in this country. And in this sense, uh, the outcome of this trial represents a, a battle that was won, a long fought, and as Candace Montgomery so eloquently described in the, the work that she's been doing, the consequence of years of organizing work in Minneapolis. And just to remind you, each one of these battles will take place uh, in the courts of our country, whether it will be in uh, Toledo, Ohio, uh, I'm sorry, whether it will be in Chicago, uh, whether it will be in uh, th this case, most recently with Micaiah Bryant uh, in Columbus, Ohio. And so that's how I think about the trial and the work that remains. But of course, we know that while the prosecution was performing in such a way to make the case that Derek Chauvin uh, was a rogue actor, the truth is that policing should have been on trial in that case. And we don't have a mechanism in our current system of laws uh, in the way that we treat individual offenses uh, to have that uh, accountability and justice delivered. And the reason being, of course, is that our policing system was never really built to deal with individuals. It was built to control groups. Uh, and those groups ranging from indigenous people uh, during the period of colonization and the early 19th century. And of course, for the vast majority of people of African descent in this country uh, for 250 years in the context of uh, chattel slavery was meant simply to protect an economic system where people had been defined as property. And if that property decided to steal itself, uh, there would be deputized armed white men of every class and category in the society to ensure that they would not escape. And that history has never left us. That history is still with us. And policing right through this very moment remains overwhelmingly concentrated within the most divested, poorest communities in our country that are of color because uh, truth be told, for rural white Americans who experience severe poverty, uh, policing per capita is much lower. So we have a system that began in the context of slavery and control and remains in its deepest roots uh, that same system. 
And Khalil, I wanted to ask you about that because I often uh, tell my students and journalists to go back into the archival history of our newspapers to see this uh, represented uh, vividly. I, for instance, in 1706, the uh, Boston Newsletter, the first uh, continuously published newspaper in America, wrote, uh, blacks are, quote, much addicted to stealing, lying, and purloining. And a few years later, his competitor paper, this is an amazing uh, uh, statement in a newspaper, said, quote, the great disorders committed by Negroes who are permitted by their imprudent masters to be out late at night has determined several sober and substantial housekeepers to walk about the town in the sore part of the night. Uh, so the citizen watch patrols were already being developed in early 1700s uh, to control the black population of Boston. Of course, this, as you use so eloquently ex expressed, then becomes the actual the, the slave patrols and then our modern police departments. Uh, this, uh, uh, to what degree are most Americans aware of this history? Well, I think it's fair to say most are not aware. Maybe the learning curve has steepened a bit over the past year. Uh, but the truth is, Americans, whether we talk about the origins of policing or the simple reality of the 350 years covering chattel slavery to the segregation period, uh, we know empirically that most Americans are not taught these histories. And this is true for African-American children as well, whose, whose curriculum are covered by state legislatures, which are dominated uh, by whites who are not willing to come to terms or reckon with this history. And while I want to say one more thing about those examples that you described, what I think is so powerful about turning to colonial and antebellum uh, archival records is that white people did not mince their words. They were quite clear and articulate about what it is that they were doing when they simply criminalized blackness or they simply criminalized the right to be, as my colleague Kelly Lytle Hernandez has written. And our language has become uh, a way of obfuscating those same mechanisms. Uh, we live in a time in this modern period of social media where we have accelerated the capacity to say one thing in public, but to do something else quite differently in our policy and practice. And so those history lessons are critical. Indeed, I would say life-saving when it comes to making sure that as we move forward from this moment, if it is even possible, that we come to terms with the clarity with which past political elites talked about what they were doing. Well, in that vein, you mentioned that uh, initially there were attempts to uh, to control and to, uh, obviously suppress the native populations. Uh, but uh, especially in the light of the recent uh, uh, shooting of Adam Toledo, this history of the Latinos and other people of color. Uh, for instance, there was uh, one book, Gunpowder Justice, uh, that claims that the Texas Rangers just between 1915 and 1920 uh, killed 5,000 uh, Mexicans in the state of Texas as a suppression force. And the LA Times recently reported that there have been 465 Latinos killed by the police just in Los Angeles County uh, since 2000. That works out to about one Latino every two weeks for the last 20 years have been killed just in LA County. This whole issue of of uh, the policing being used as a means of suppression and uh, terrorism of these communities. Um, 
Yeah, no, the, those those reminders uh, that anti-blackness may have been the motivation for the infrastructure uh, of policing, but it didn't stop there. And I think that as part of the broader historical context in which we need to come to terms with the past as a predicate for the action and the work uh, that has remained. I mean, Candace Montgomery is such an articulate spokesperson for the work that's happening on the ground, but she is exceptional. And the work of the Black Visions Collective is exceptional. The work of the Anti-Police Terror Project led by James Birch in Oakland is exceptional. We still have members of black and brown communities that are still in need of recognizing the broader limits of police reforming themselves. And when Yuan described uh, the sheer toll that is happening within Latinx communities and tethering that to the fact that we have evidence that it may be that there were just as many people of Central American or Mexican ancestry killed by lynch mobs or by police agencies like the Texas Rangers, uh, that number may exceed or match the numbers of recorded lynchings of African-Americans in this country. It's just astounding and, and only shows exponentially how much terror has been an instrument of control in this country. Always, uh, Professor Muhammad, um, you've got um, The Guardian reporting on um, in a data breach, uh, police uh, helping to fund uh, Carl Rittenhouse, Kyle Rittenhouse, the young man who opened fire and killed two Black Lives Matter activists and walked away, even as people were saying, this is the guy that shot those protesters. And you've got the police acting as terrorists themselves, the whole issue of violence directed against, and you write about this eloquently, um, against the poor. And also, if you can talk about new immigrants and how police are used. Thank you, Amy. Listen, the, the, the fact of how much policing is baked into every system of our society. Um, you know, when we think about what's been happening at the border uh, during the Trump administration, um, this is another expression of the way that the Trump administration simply weaponized the systems that were already in place, did not invent them. And the degree to which something like the Cal Rittenhouse um, example of, of a white man self-deputized uh, as an anti-black terrorist um, to shoot people uh, with the protections of the so-called Second Amendment, and then to be applauded and supported, to be given water on the scene, uh, to later receive something like $600,000 in defense funds, uh, many of which came from law enforcement itself, or to reflect on the fact that the Donald Trump received 74 million votes in this election uh, in calling for more policing, more white nationalism, more border control, um, more terrorism, and that the Republican Party, as we know now, is holding up the George Floyd Policing Act as a singular uh, unit of support for this kind of uh, ongoing terror that's happening in this country is just remarkable. I mean, we, we are nowhere near um, able at this time to recognize some consensus on a common way forward to recognize the humanity of people, whether they are asylum seekers coming into this country from Central America or whether they were born here um, in any part of this country. And as much as I am hopeful for 
the possibilities of the activist work of people like Candace Montgomery, uh, I think we all need to be as vigilant as possible uh, that we are nowhere near where we need to be in order to expect that black lives will not continue to be cut short by everything we've seen so far. And just to say the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which was passed by the House but is being held up in the Senate, um, uh, among its components, ban chokeholds, ban no-knock warrants, create a duty to intervene, create a public registry, overhaul qualified immunity. And Minneapolis Congresswoman Ilhan Omar tweeted after the verdict, this is but a minuscule step on the path to justice. Next stops, independent agency to investigate police misuse of force, criminalize violence against protesters, demilitarize police departments, disband and deconstruct failed police departments. Your response? Well, I think that, <laughs> you listen, I, I think that everything that uh, Ilhan Oman it has described is on the table. Uh, and I agree with her that the justice uh, Floyd Act, it limits um, the, well, demonstrates the limits of the federal government uh, to control 18,000 decentralized agencies. And while, as she rightly notes, it is a first step, uh, and I think it's a good first step for that reason, much of this work will depend upon state legislatures uh, to take over the work of transformation. And, you know, we are seeing everything from the removal of traffic uh, violation uh, from policing, uh, as has happened in Berkeley uh, more recently. Uh, we are seeing uh, the public health authority uh, being called upon to take greater responsibility for delivering community-based uh, violence interruption and uh, community-based or trauma-centered harm reduction. And I think these are all what we can imagine at this moment for bringing forward transformation. But the bottom line is we're probably not yet there for the full possibilities of what is to come. And so we have to expect over the coming weeks, months and years that people will be experimenting on the ground, will be trying things new. But this is going to ultimately be about political accountability for elected officials, because that's where the legislative change has to happen. And Khalil, I wanted to ask you, we, in an information society uh, like ours, uh, people tend to make a fetish of statistics, and crime mm -hmm. statistics are often used by, uh, uh, by politicians. Could you talk about Frederick Hoffman, how uh, he misused statistics to demonize black people? Sure. Well, in this day and age, we are having a conversation about crime statistics as an index of the threat and danger that black people pose when we are listening to a lot of political elites and particularly police officials. Um, while we're not having this conversation today, if we, if we had a counterpoint, that counterpoint would be that since George Floyd was killed, the spike in violence that occurred across major cities in this country is itself evidence, prima facie evidence, statistical evidence that black people are in need of more policing and not less policing. And, and this is the legacy of Frederick Hoffman, to make the argument that the evidence of crime that happens or violence or harm that happens within the community is evidence of the dysfunctionality and the dangerousness of that population. But that's a lie. And it's always been a lie. Because 
the violence within that community is itself a symptom of the violence of the state and the violence of a society that was focused on extraction and exploitation of people. And why do we know this? Because it wasn't just black people who experienced this. It was white people, it was European immigrants that experienced this. And about 100 years ago, the same people that produced statistics recognized that they should see violence as symptomatic of a capitalist society that is grinding people and that is committing acts of violence in the economy itself. And how to fix that was not through policing. How to fix that was to invest in those community with pro-social interventions, to give people the economic security, the collective bargaining rights, the right to be seen and to simply be, as I, again, to quote my colleague Kelly Lytle Hernandez. So we are still living with Hoffman. Hoffman's legacy in defining crime statistics among black and brown people as evidence of their dangerousness and then driving policing as the response to that is still the legacy we live with. It is the infrastructure that we, many of us, uh, are trying to dismantle. And that's going to take a lot of hard work, ladies and gentlemen, a lot of uh, determination. Uh, we're going to need a lot of unity from our uh, uh, native black Americans, as well as uh, more legislation. And this is going to include a whole lot of things, ladies and gentlemen, like uh, um, reform in the uh, police department, a uh, total uh, deconstruction. So what that means is, ladies and gentlemen, it is going to have to be destroyed at the base, at the very core of uh, uh, policing and be totally uh, refabricated into uh, something that will equal the playing field and give Native Black Americans the uh, proper justice uh, here in the divided snakes of America. I believe that this is what he was saying because this is a, a deep-rooted um, base of uh, policing in America that has started since uh, the lynch mobs, since the, the chain gangs. You know, this is the way that they uh, policed uh, uh, Native Black Americans. So, with all that being said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to end this uh, uh, episode. And I want to thank y'all so much for tuning in. But I'm going to have to come back on this. I can't let this go uh, with this one particular uh, uh, episode in order to get more in-depth about uh, the policies and the practices and the... Uh, the do's and the don'ts and the things that need to be done in order to uh, eliminate this type of policing here in America. Boy, I thank y'all so much for tuning in. As I tell y'all always at the end of every show, y'all please continue to do your social distancing. We're starting to see a rise across the world with this uh, COVID-19 and these new variances out here. Uh, uh, hospitals are now at capacity again. And uh, uh, we are getting reported uh, um, deaths and uh, um, from these uh, new variances that's out here. So we're not out of the woods. So y'all need to be continue to wearing your uh, outer gear. You need to continue to be uh, washing your hands for 20 seconds or more. You need to, to continue to uh, uh, get those mach clothes machine washed. If you're outside for any extended amount of time, Throw those clothes directly in the machine and get them uh, cleaned up and freshened up. And then get yourself bathed up and uh, cleaned up before you decide to relax in your home to reduce the spread of this virus. These things are very important, ladies and gentlemen. Just like the uh, your immune system. 
which is the number one defense, ladies and gentlemen, against this virus and any of these other viruses and variances that's out here. A healthy and a strong immune system is your best and number one defense. So, guys, take care of that immune system by eating the uh, proper uh, meals, by uh, taking the proper vitamins, by uh, uh, consuming the proper uh, vegetables and fruits and nuts and berries and seeds and lemon and garlic and onions and peppers and G-bombs. Don't forget the G-bombs. All these foods, ladies and gentlemen, are number one builders of a healthy and strong immune system. And we know with a healthy and strong immune system, you can um, prevent yourself from getting this virus or even in the unlikely event that you do test positive you will be able to get rid of it ladies and gentlemen with little to no medication with a healthy and strong immune system so take care of your immune system ladies and gentlemen guys i love you i love bringing you these stories and loving you guys is my food and teddy g is hungry each and every single day of his life and until i have the opportunity to talk to you guys again I bid each and every one of you peace, love, and soul. Have a good morning.